0: Hey there, and welcome to the second episode of my new podcast. Uh, Sorry for the delay, I figured I would wait until there was a construction crew outside my window taking a jackhammer to the street before I actually uh, sat down and recorded this, so apologies if any of that noise comes through. But anyways, for this episode I thought I'd kind of come out swinging with a topic that I think will hopefully grab the attention of those I want most to engage with uh, this podcast, but also I chose this topic because of what has been happening with regards to the Postal Service recently. I'm sure some of you listening are already fuming at the title alone, so I hope you'll stick with me and kind of hear me out. And again, for those who are listening for the first time, I want to encourage you to reach out to me directly so that we can hopefully follow up with a more constructive conversation. Uh, I had some responses to the first episode I recorded from folks who wanted to discuss other topics, which I'm definitely down for, but I still want to keep the focus, at least for now, on the particular issues that I bring up because I hope to preemptively address some of the points that I'm sure these folks... want to bring up in future conversations. Uh, Again, my goal with this podcast is not to offend or alienate anyone, but only to vent some thoughts I have, which I hope will help explain my worldview and assist others in contemplating their own. So with that said, I hope you join me as I explain why I think the GOP doesn't believe in democracy. And again, I invite you to prove me wrong, please. Okay, so up until yesterday, actually, I was originally planning to discuss a different topic for this episode, but the recent events regarding the Postal Service inspired me to call last minute audible and instead focus on the topic of democracy and how I feel one party in particular has recently diverged from the principle that I think is the foundation of the United States of America. If you haven't been paying attention to the news recently and have no idea what I'm referring to when I mention the U.S. Postal Service, that's no worries. Uh, Let me just catch you up really quick. Basically, the USPS has been a major topic in the news this past week. Uh, Following an interview President Trump gave with Fox News, I believe last Wednesday, during which he stated that he would not approve a recent request from congressional Democrats to provide additional funding to the Postal Service ahead of the 2020 election, which they argue is essential because the National Mail Delivery Service is currently ill-equipped to handle the massive amounts of ballots that are expected to be submitted via mail this year due to the coronavirus. Trump, being the stable genius that he is, admitted on camera that the reason he would deny that request is because Democrats, quote, need that money in order to make the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots. Now, he later defended his statements by pulling out a page from the typical GOP playbook and talking about government inefficiencies, and that's an entirely separate conversation that I'll kind of get into later but his initial comments are significant because they reflect a larger and an increasingly blatant attempt to interfere in the upcoming election process, which is only a further escalation in the fight against the institution of democracy that one political party has been waging for years. A friend of mine who I was talking to uh, the other night suggested that I title this episode something more neutral, like American Democracy is Broken. And while I don't disagree with the general sentiment of that statement, I, and I understand his suggestion that both sides are to blame because they are, I stuck with my original title because I think this is another perfect example of a false equivalency that I think deserves more scrutiny. Any objective review of the evidence would demonstrate that simply saying both sides are equally responsible for the erosion of our democratic norms and institutions is just outright false. And if we are serious about trying to fix these problems in our system, I believe it's necessary to first figure out why and how they originated in the first place. I know it's a tough sell to argue that one party is so radically different from the other in terms of blame, but I promise you that as with most issues, if you really take the time and look at the details instead of just taking a bird's eye view, you will come away realizing the same thing that I have. One of the silver linings of Donald Trump's presidency is that he makes it significantly easier to see these hidden realities and expose cracks in our system that the right has long sought to exploit to their own political advantage. I would love to be proven wrong, uh, and again I invite you to do so, but I believe the only difference between Trump and other Republicans is that he says out loud what they say privately. I think we can all agree that elections are supposed to have consequences, but if you look at how the modern GOP has sought to systematically control who votes, and then negate election results they dislike, you too will see that the GOP does not care what the majority of the population wants, and they are increasingly willing to flout various norms that are necessary for upholding any functioning democracy. The first tool that Republicans have used to rig elections in their favor is through gerrymandering, which is basically just the process of drawing congressional districts in a way that allows politicians to choose their voters instead of the other way around. While this is definitely something that Democrats have done in the past as well, Republicans have made it a science and exported it nationwide. After the last U.S. Census in 2010, Republican strategist and slab of ham come to life Carl Rove led a coordinated effort named Project Red Map, which basically enabled the GOP to maintain its House majority during the Obama years, even though Democratic House candidates won far more votes than their Republican counterparts. These efforts have been concentrated in important swing states where elections matter the most. For example, in 2018, during the midterm elections, Republicans won about 50% of the vote in North Carolina but received 70% of its House seats due entirely to gerrymandering. The state Republicans didn't even try and hide their efforts at the time, with the state rep who led this redistricting committee openly admitting that the extreme gerrymandering was necessary because he believed, quote, Electing Republicans is better than electing Democrats, so I drew this map in a way to help foster what I think is better for the country. It's worth noting that this map was so racially contorted that it was later struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court for, quote, targeting African Americans with almost surgical precision. Now, Wisconsin Republicans saw the same thing happen that year, with Democrats winning the majority of votes, but gaining vast minorities in both chambers of the state legislature. Now, like I said, Democrats aren't entirely innocent here and have made similar efforts to draw district lines in their favor. But it's worth noting that local Democrats behind one of the more extreme recent examples of gerrymandering, which happened in New Jersey, backed off of their plans after widespread criticism from the state's Democratic governor and the National Democratic Party. And I say that because there's just never been a similar party backlash when state Republicans, like those in North Carolina or Wisconsin, have proposed such aggressive plans. Gerrymandering is just undemocratic, which is why numerous Democratic-led states like California and Virginia have introduced solutions like bipartisan and independent redistricting committees that can draw the maps fairly. But again, there isn't a single state where Republicans have offered a similar solution, at least not that I'm aware of. I mention this only to point out just the fundamental asymmetry between the two parties. The second method Republicans use to unfairly control the outcome of elections is through voter suppression. Now, this comes in many forms, but the most prominent is voter ID laws, which Republicans claim is necessary in order to prevent voter fraud. Again, at face value, their argument seems to make total sense. You need a photo ID to buy beer and drive a car, so why shouldn't you have one to vote? But again, if you look closer, voter ID is simply a solution in search of a problem that does not exist. Out of the more than 1 billion ballots cast in elections in the U.S. from 2000 to 2014, there were 31 confirmed cases of voter impersonation fraud that these voter ID laws would have theoretically prevented. To put that into further perspective, there are more Americans struck by lightning than instances of voter fraud. And this is just largely because the consequence of committing such a crime is so severe for how insignificant the payout of illegally casting a single vote is. If this isn't enough to convince you that voter fraud is essentially non-existent, then I'd also like to point out that upon taking office, Trump set up a committee to investigate what he claimed were the 3 million illegal immigrants who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And that committee, which was stacked with his political appointees and cronies, did not find any evidence to validate the claim, despite working on it for, I think, like over a year. So why are Republicans so defiant in their effort to implement these laws? Put simply, minority and low-income voters who tend to vote Democratic are disproportionately affected and therefore less likely to vote with this added obstacle, even if it seems pretty small. Republicans know this, and once again, they don't even try that hard to hide their true intentions. In 2012, for example, when Pennsylvania's GOP legislature passed its voter ID law, the state's House Republican leader bragged on camera, quote, voter ID is going to allow Governor Romney to win the state of Pennsylvania. And again, if you don't believe me, just Google it yourself. It remains relatively unclear how effective voter ID laws have been at depressing voter turnout. I mean, there have been some studies, but in 2008, four states had strict voter ID laws on the book, and by 2018, an additional 10 states, all led by Republicans, had implemented similar laws. Again, these efforts have been most concentrated in important swing states like Wisconsin, where leading up to the 2016 election, the Republican governor, Scott Walker, passed a strict voter ID law that suppressed approximately 200,000 votes in a state that Trump won by 20,000. Like I said, I know the idea seems to make sense at face value, but I just feel that voter ID laws are the equivalent to requiring all gun owners to complete a safety course before being allowed to cast a ballot. Even though no such evidence exists to support this measure, could you imagine if Democrats tried making the argument that such a rule is necessary in order to protect public safety, even if it had a disproportionate impact on Republican voters? There would literally be people riding in the streets, except, unlike what we're seeing today, they'd all be white people. Luckily, Democrats don't like to play dirty and actually believe in making voting easier, not harder, so you'll just never see such an effort. There are a few other methods Republicans use to disenfranchise specific voters, including blocking efforts to make Election Day a national holiday, intimidating voters at polling places, restricting former felons from voting, Enclosing closing polling locations in minority communities, but one particular effort that recently made headlines is purging voters ahead of an election. This is a tactic in which state government officials go through voter registration rules and remove people who have not voted recently, which tends to disproportionately impact demographics that typically vote Democrat. Surprise, surprise. In 2015, For example, Ohio passed a law that would set up an automated system to do exactly this. And after the Supreme Court voted along party lines to allow the practice, despite complaints that it would routinely remove mostly Democratic voters, 12 other Republican-led states began drafting similar legislation. In the 2018 midterm elections, Georgia passed a similar law that removed 50,000 voters from the rolls mere weeks before the election. And 70% of those people were black. This effort, combined with the closure of polling places in urban areas, led to extremely long lines at polling locations where voters had to re-register to vote and wait hours just to cast a ballot. I mean, we all kind of hate waiting in line for literally anything. Could you imagine waiting hours just to cast a ballot? Again, this effort is nationwide and it is very much intentional with black and Hispanic people being twice as likely as white people to experience barriers to voting. And much of this has occurred in the last seven years after the conservative justices on the Supreme Court struck down a key provision of the 1963 Voting Rights Act that had previously provided election oversight for states with a history of discrimination from crafting voting laws like these that benefited one particular party. Democrats have offered legislation that would address this issue, but the Republican-controlled Senate has not even brought up the legislation for a vote. In their minds, I think their justification is that racism doesn't exist anymore, so it's not even worthwhile. And that's, again, a separate topic entirely, and I encourage you to listen to my first episode if you want to kind of get into that argument. Anyways, in addition to manipulating who votes in elections, the Republican Party has also just entirely negated the results of elections that don't go their way in 2016 for example again north carolina voters elected a democratic governor finally breaking a republican stranglehold on the state government but the state legislature convened a special session immediately after the election and passed a bill that stripped the incoming governor of key powers including most notably his ability to end permanent republican supervision over the state elections Now, this effort provided a model that, again, Republicans in Wisconsin took note of and used to pass a similar bill also targeting their newly elected Democratic governor, stripping him of many powers traditionally granted to any governor. Trump and many Republicans like to constantly complain that Democrats just can't accept the results of the 2016 election. Yet there are far more examples of the GOP doing exactly that in some of the most important states in the country, and no one seems to give a shit. Now, I don't know about you, but having grown up playing sports, it just annoys me that so many people are okay with an entire party acting like sore losers who would rather cheat or quit the game entirely instead of accepting defeat. I mean... I feel like we hold the Houston Astros to a higher standard than we do an entire political party, and that just seems kind of fucked up. Perhaps more concerning than all the efforts to delegitimize elections that I've mentioned is the GOP's overall just assault on important institutions that must function properly in order for any healthy democracy to thrive. The most obvious of these is Congress itself, which has come to a near standstill in terms of legislating over the past 12 years. Now, when Obama was elected in 2008, Mitch McConnell, who was then the minority leader of the Senate, said to his Republican counterparts that their goal was to make Obama a one-term president. The way that they would do this is by opposing every measure proposed by his administration without putting any effort into actually compromising or legislating. Just look at the effort to repeal Obamacare as an example. For years, Republicans have railed against this bill without ever providing an alternative option. And this is after Democrats made numerous concessions that ultimately resulted in a piece of legislation that Republicans had once supported. And that's just one of many examples of Republicans in Congress just choosing party over country. When Obama was reelected, In 2012, McConnell and Congressional Republicans then made it their mission to prove that a Democratic president and a Republican Congress could not function together, because this would help thwart the chances of a Democrat succeeding Obama as president in 2016. Doesn't that seem a bit petty? The coordinated assault on the Postal Service, as I mentioned earlier, has followed this similar model. In 2006, Congressional Republicans passed a bill that required the Postal Service to preemptively fund the pensions of all postal workers for, I believe, the next 70 years, which essentially bankrupted what was previously a relatively efficient government institution that provides a public good. It's not meant to create a profit. Now, ever since that costly decision, Republicans have been calling for further spending cuts to the Postal Service in favor of allowing private industry to take over instead. Just like McConnell kneecapping Congress and then using the government dysfunction he created to justify calling for change that kind of fits his interests, the GOP is doing literally the exact same thing with the Postal Service. So when Trump ramped up this effort last week, Republicans were notably silent because although Trump's motivation seems mostly just to benefit his chances in the upcoming election, it still fits their larger goal of privatizing literally everything that's worth making a buck off of even if that institution is enshrined in the constitution that Republicans claim to love so much. And if you're shaking your head right now at my assertion that Trump is intentional in his effort to cripple the USPS to benefit himself in November, it's kind of worth reminding you that earlier this year, Trump said, if we expand early voting and voting by mail, quote, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. And although there is literally no evidence that vote by mail benefits one party over the other, His new postmaster general, who is a major donor and has no experience with the Postal Service, has the same belief. That's why he recently reassigned 23 of the agency's top officials, eliminated overtime, and mandated that automated mail sorting machines around the country be decommissioned which has led officials within the agency to, I believe last week, warn something like 40 states that they will see massive delays in mail delivery mere weeks before an election where a historic number of voters are expected to vote by mail due to concerns about the coronavirus. I don't know about you, but this seems like pretty clear and deliberate sabotage that will undoubtedly harm many rural communities, small businesses, and seniors who rely on mail delivery every day. And the idea that it is in the name of reforming a broken agency is just bullshit, especially given the timing. Like I said, this coordinated effort to undermine government institutions has been on full display over the last four years. Over the course of his presidency, Trump has successfully undermined every government institution that has provided any sort of check on his power. And he's done it by punishing his perceived enemies and driving out career officials who have any remaining competence and integrity. What's left is a thin layer of just Trump loyalists who appear to be in government for their own financial interests. And I know there are some of you who hate all politicians, but it's not like these career government officials make much money and you gotta have to acknowledge that you rely on them every day. Also, their absence is costly, whether or not you realize it yet. The government response to the coronavirus is a perfect example of how this historically ineffective and inexperienced government can literally cost thousands of lives, but the effects of Trump's nepotism and disdain for these career officials, who he considers the deep state, is just far more widespread. In the last four years, over 1,000 scientists have left government, including almost 80% of employees at the National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The Labor Department has made deep cuts in safety inspectors, and worker deaths nationwide have increased dramatically, while recalls of unsafe consumer products have also dropped off. Prosecution of white-collar crime has, shocker, plummeted under Trump, and when passing laws has proven too onerous for him, he just guts the agency of any expertise so it just can't function. The EPA is a perfect example of this, and it's worth pointing out that the current head of the EPA is a former coal lobbyist who spent his entire career literally fighting the EPA in court. The federal courts have also been shaped for a generation due to Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans filling a record number of positions with young justices who are extremely conservative and kind of share this vision. But the institution that I think has been most damaged under Trump is the Justice Department, which in the last four years has turned into just another arm of the president and GOP instead of the country's top independent law enforcement agency. No previous administration has politicized the institutions of the executive branch anywhere close to the degree that we see today, and the effects of that are pretty evident. Most recently, Attorney General Bill Barr has intervened in numerous cases close to Trump, which sends a signal to those who break the law that he will not pursue them in court. Before that, Barr's DOJ defended Trump's fake declaration of emergency to redirect funds that were not appropriated by Congress to build his southern border wall, which is just simply unconstitutional. And at the beginning of this year, during the impeachment trial, which again feels like decades ago, Barr actively sought to silence the whistleblower complaint and downplay the findings of the Mueller investigation before it was even released. Republicans in Congress were certainly no better during that time and repeatedly ignored subpoena requests and refused to turn over information that they were legally required to. But without an institution like the DOJ to kind of enforce this, the investigation into wrongdoing went largely obstructed and Trump's acquittal just kind of further encouraged his abuse of power. If congressional Republicans truly cared about democracy, they would have stopped ignoring Trump's open invitation for foreign powers like China to interfere in the upcoming election. But unfortunately, that has not happened. And if you think I'm being overdramatic here, then just please explain to me why Mitch McConnell has refused to consider a single piece of legislation intended to protect our election process that Democrats have passed in the House of Reps, which, by the way, has been one of the most productive sessions in congressional history. Also, it's worth pointing out that I believe today an article came out that in 2016, the Trump campaign was openly willing to accept foreign assistance in uh, winning that election. And again, Congressional Republicans just kind of look the other way and shake their head and do nothing. Back to the impeachment trial, though, refusing to allow witnesses during that trial is one thing, but literally doing everything in their power to prevent making the changes necessary to protect the integrity of our election is another. And we shouldn't be surprised when a year from now, we are reading reports about even further foreign intervention in the election this upcoming November, because it's bound to happen. So, Why does the GOP pull this sort of bullshit when they are constantly claiming to be the true defenders of democracy and freedom, and the Constitution for that matter? I think the answer is pretty simple, and it involves who they actually represent. It's pretty obvious to most people that money in Washington is a big problem, and politicians of both parties are certainly heavily influenced by wealthy interests. For example, for every dollar spent lobbying Washington on behalf of unions or public interests, corporations spend approximately $34 dollars lobbying on behalf of their private interests. In 2016 alone, corporate interests spent over $3 billion lobbying members of Congress, which is about $6 million per member of Congress. Rich individuals have also invested heavily in supporting their politicians, and it should come as no surprise that the average senator votes in favor of their wealthier constituents a majority of the time. However, this brings up another example of an important false equivalency. According to a study that analyzed voting records from 2001 to 2015, the average U.S. Republican senator voted in favor of their wealthy constituents over their poor ones 86% of the time, whereas the average Democratic senator voted in favor of their rich constituents 35% of the time. Now, if you're like me and believe that every person, regardless of their individual wealth, should have equal representation in Congress in terms of policies their representatives support, then there is no question that one party chooses to listen to their wealthier constituents over the poor more than the other. And if you wanted to remove the growing influence of money from policymaking in the first place, then you would support overturning Citizens United, which was a landmark Supreme Court decision in 2010, where the, again, conservative justices ruled that wealthy individuals and corporations can contribute unlimited and undisclosed amounts of money to politicians because it is considered free speech. Democrats have been opposed to that ruling, and Republicans just have not. And the only people who benefit from it are those with financial stakes in those corporations to begin with, or just wealthy individuals. I know this is kind of a separate topic entirely, which I'll probably address in a later episode, but the Republican economic principle of just trickle-down economics has been proven to be a failure, yet they continue to support it because it benefits the wealthiest Americans at the expense of literally everyone else. And that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make here. The erosion of democracy is very much intentional because it benefits a small minority at the expense of literally everyone else. I mean, not only does today's Republican Party represent wealthier interests, but they also represent a just growing minority of Americans in general, specifically just older white people. And this is the culmination of a coordinated strategy that dates back to Richard Nixon, who was the first president to just directly appeal to low-income white people in the South using racist dog whistles disguised as defending states' rights. Today's Republican Party is 90% white and about like 73% white Christians, but the country is just quickly becoming more diverse, both in terms of religion and race. So it's not all that surprising that the Republican base feels like they're losing ground and are locked out of cultural and media power, which is disproportionately urban and diverse. This is also why Republicans have been so defensive of the Electoral College, which gives rural, largely white communities in states like Wyoming far greater representation in Congress than more populated and urban states like California and New York. I know there is a legitimate conservative argument for the Electoral College in terms of ensuring presidential candidates don't just entirely ignore these more rural states and focus on big cities for the votes, But I believe a system that in my relatively short lifetime has twice granted the presidency to someone who lost the popular vote is just not democratic. There are obviously plenty of problems with our overall system of democracy, but Republicans would lose the presidency every time if everyone's vote was truly weighed equally. And instead of changing their platform to keep up with the times and be more inclusive, the GOP has instead chosen to maintain a rigged system that just benefits them. Later this week, I plan on talking to some friends of mine about libertarianism, uh, hopefully for a future episode. And I think one thing that most people, regardless of political ideology, agree on is that our two-party system is just inherently broken because it prevents third-party candidates from ever being given a legitimate opportunity to run for president. But there are ways to enable this that wouldn't require just rewriting the Constitution. And again, Republicans are opposed to it. For example, there's currently something called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which is a formal agreement between a number of states to award all of their electoral college votes to whichever candidate won the popular vote across the country. This would ensure that people who live in heavily partisan communities like Chicago, where I grew up, actually feel like their vote for president matters, but it also maintains the proportional representation in Congress. Currently, only 15 states have joined on, All of them led by Democrats, I believe. And without additional Republican states joining, it won't go into effect. So for those who complain about having to choose between a shit taco and a turd sandwich every four years, shout out South Park. I want to point out that there is only one party that is offering anything close to a solution that would potentially enable someone like libertarian candidate Joe Jorgensen an opportunity to compete on the national level. Now, I'm currently a Democrat and I absolutely plan on voting for Biden in November, but I would welcome a third-party candidate like Jorgensen into the national debate under a system that would ensure the three candidates are given equal opportunity. Unfortunately, that just doesn't currently exist. And while I like Biden a lot, my biggest problem with him is that he isn't bold enough to lead this sort of like drastic change. He has historically always kind of conformed to the general wishes of the population, which I know is the role of a politician generally in terms of just representing the majority interests, whatever they may be at that time. But repairing the foundation of our democracy requires a greater vision that I believe perhaps some of the other candidates displayed during the primaries. Biden still seems to think that Trump is just an aberration from the GOP, when in reality he is just a more obvious display of the party's true intentions. And I believe fixing our democracy requires at least acknowledging something as basic as that. I think the reason the GOP has proven just unwilling to check Trump's near-daily abuses of power is because at least he's on their team. And I know it's become pointless to point out their hypocrisy, but it just feels like the Republican Party has become the Monstars in Space Jam, and the Democrats are Michael Jordan and the Toon Squad who are literally just getting the shit kicked out of them while still trying to play by the rules. Republicans aren't even trying to play on a level playing field. And without acknowledging that, Biden and the Democratic Party will never be able to make the adjustments necessary to actually win the game. I believe that in politics, much like in sports, the best team deserves to win. But you still need impartial referees to enforce the rules and guarantee fair play. And I'm just surprised that more people, especially on the right, just don't seem to agree with that basic assumption. Now, I'm going to wrap this up, but before I do, I I think it's important to put Trump and the GOP into the larger context of what is happening worldwide. And one of the things I've learned from my study of international politics in college and my experiences living and working abroad is that we're witnessing an undeniable rise of authoritarianism around the world. The current leaders of Hungary, Poland, the Philippines, India, Turkey, Egypt, Brazil, and even a few others are all right-wing strongmen, very similar to Trump, who are following the Russian-Chinese model of government, which is basically just a kleptocracy that offers some semblance of a democracy in order to fend off complaints from its citizens. Now, these leaders have been successful at capitalizing on the many economic and technological and even cultural changes that have taken place over the last 20 years that have made average people just feel left behind economically and therefore insecure and the result has been just the rapid concentration of political power and wealth. This past weekend, for example, Belarus saw its largest protests in history as people fled to the streets to protest its recent sham election, in which the country's current leader, who is known as Europe's last dictator, won 80% of the vote in what most people are calling a rigged election. Not far away, Hungary's white nationalist party, rigged its electoral system in 2011 to consolidate its power by rewarding friendly businesses, punishing critics, and suppressing independent news media. Also recently, Hungary's president used the global pandemic to pass a rule that literally allows him to rule by decree. So I mention all this because Trump is just simply a product of this global shift away from democracy, and he has fully embraced many of the tendencies some of these leaders, including Putin, uh, have embraced that the U.S. has always sort of fought against. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I honestly feel like I'm living in 1935 Germany, and the warning signs are literally everywhere, but some people just kind of refuse to actually look for them. And to drive this point home, there was once this, you know, iconic poster that was sold at the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington that outlined the early warning signs of fascism. And I just want to read through them really quick, and you tell me if any of them sound a little eerily familiar. Powerful and continuing nationalism, disdain for human rights, identification of enemies as a unifying cause, supremacy of the military, rampant sexism, controlled mass media, obsession with national security, religion and government intertwined, corporate power protected, labor power suppressed, disdain for intellectuals and the arts, obsession with crime and punishment, rampant cronyism and corruption. And finally, fraudulent elections. Now, I know this sounds extreme, but I'd say most of those kind of reflect the Republican Party. But let's just use Trump as an example. He has pardoned numerous buddies of his who have committed serious crimes while constantly condemning immigrants, minorities, and liberals for that matter. He's also filled government with grifters interested only in lining their own pockets. He prioritizes loyalty over competence, even though... Government officials take an oath to serve the Constitution, not the president. He's politicized our military and police to combat peaceful protesters, most notably in Lafayette Square in Washington for a photo op that happened like mere weeks ago. And he has consistently attacked the free press on a just near daily basis, routinely calling them the enemy of the people. Numerous military officials and conservative journalists like Chris Wallace have condemned the actions, in addition to plenty of Democrats. But I believe there are just far too many people in government remaining quiet who one day will look back at this moment and probably say something along the lines of, we were just following orders. I know this sounds corny, but government officials are supposed to ultimately take their marching orders from us, the people. So I think the only way we can fight this erosion of democracy is if the public speaks out. And I'm just not really seeing that happen. With everything that Trump has done over the course of the last four years, his approval rating among Republicans has never dipped below like 85%, and today it's around 90%. So for those Trump supporters still listening, you know I love you, but you just can't possibly deny that Trump clearly has an affinity for authoritarian leaders like Putin. And if you truly believe in the American dream where anyone can come here and work hard and earn their citizenship— and I think you just can't continue to support the party and president that so clearly does not share that same vision of democracy. In a recent speech, Trump said he'd consider running for a third term as president because, quote, they spied on me, end quote, during his first term. And before you just roll your eyes at my suggestion that we're currently living through a slow-moving coup, just keep in mind that two-thirds of attempts by presidents to overstay their term around the world have proven successful. And the only thing that has blocked these attempts were widespread protests, similar to the ones that are happening in Belarus today that I previously mentioned. CIA officials have been warning that our president's behavior resembles what they have seen overthrow democratic governments around the world. But we need folks like you to listen in order to actually make a difference. The common characteristic of any authoritarian country is just an adversarial relationship with the truth. And Trump literally refuses to hear bad news about Russia in his rare intelligence reports, so much so that his advisors literally hide it in written reports so as not to make him angry. Is this not concerning? So what's the solution? Now, I lived and worked in China for a year and a half, and while I was there, I quickly noticed that my Chinese friends were overwhelmingly disinterested in politics, but their apathy was entirely the consequence of a government that actively discouraged participation or any scrutiny, and I fear that our government is literally using the exact same playbook. I know I can often sound a bit whiny and overdramatic and preachy, but it's only because I've seen what it's like to live in a country where you truly have no say in the political process, and I just don't want to see that happen here. I care so much about that desire that when I quit my previous job at the end of 2018, I gave myself until this upcoming election to spend my time and energy trying to educate people in my own way about the day-to-day happenings in politics because I truly believe that if you pay closer attention, you will see the same thing I see and realize that our democracy is in jeopardy. And although it might sting for some of you, I think the first step to protecting our democracy is voting blue in November, up and down the ballot. As I've said plenty of times before, Democrats are nowhere near perfect. But at least they believe in what our founding fathers envisioned. And I know it sounds hyperbolic, but I believe this upcoming election is literally democracy's last stand, and tuning out completely is just not an option. Trump's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, recently stated that he doesn't believe Trump will go quietly if he loses in November. And this is something that I don't think enough people are considering seriously as possibility. The GOP is clearly willing to enable this presence worse tendencies and assist in the deconstruction of democracy, but I still believe they are only getting away with it because not enough people notice that they're doing it right in front of us. I hope I'm wrong in stating that the GOP has just given up on democracy, but I don't see any evidence otherwise. Anyways, thanks for sticking with me this far, and again, I invite anyone to reach out to me and prove me wrong, please. My email is pmwp.pod@gmail. Also, I'm still willing to chat about my topic from the first episode if you'd rather discuss that. Uh, Just let me know. Otherwise, thanks for listening and stay safe.